Uh, but thank you for joining us as we gather for worship. Today we're continuing our teaching series for the Advent season entitled The Herald, where we are looking together at John the Baptist, the one who came to prepare the way, and how his birth and his message and his ministry of baptism heralded the coming of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus. Last week, we looked together at the story of John's annunciation and naming from Luke chapter 1. And we talked about how John's annunciation by the angel Gabriel heralded his greatness and his mission and his role as a prophet. And then we saw how the story of John's naming really was a preview of his ministry because the name John means Yahweh is gracious. And it very much is a pointer to his role as the one who would prepare the way for the one who would usher in the age of grace. At the end of the story of John's annunciation and birth, the very last verse of Luke chapter one says this, and the child grew, John the Baptist, and became strong in spirit. And he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Now this morning we are gonna fast forward uh, 30-ish or so years in the story to that time when John appeared publicly to Israel and look together at how the message that John preached heralded the kingdom. Uh, if you have a Bible accessible with you today and you'd like to join me in the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Matthew chapter three, which is where we're going to be starting this morning. Uh, in addition to that, as always, the words will be projected on the screens behind me, both here in the auditorium and in the courtyard, and you can follow along there as well. But let's look together at Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Right? And so John emerges from this life in the wilderness to preach in the wilderness. And that's significant because the wilderness, as we noted a couple of weeks ago, is a deeply symbolic setting in the story of Scripture. Right? The wilderness is the place in Scripture where God is present with his people. It's the place in Scripture where God communicates with his people. And it's also the place of prophets and prophecy. Most notably, the place where Elijah preached. Right? The one who Malachi prophesied would return one day as a harbinger of the coming of the Messiah. And so here comes John, preaching in the wilderness. And he not only looks the part of a prophet right, with his Elijah-like cameled hair coat, he also has a distinctly prophetic message as well. Right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so John begins his preaching ministry with a call for his hearers to repent. Right, he ends 400 years of, of canonical silence. Right? The fir these first words spoken from a prophet are a call to repentance. Now, the core idea of repentance uh, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is, is turning to God or returning to God and away from sin. Right? Repentance is turning to God and away from sin. And the goal of repentance is to restore relationship with God and live a righteous life, right? It's to restore relationship with God and live a kingdom life. And in the New Testament, 
uh, we see that there are several different things that lead a person to reorient their life in this way. That there are several different things that lead to repentance. Sometimes the process is led by feelings of remorse for something that has been done or said. Remorse is probably the strongest association that we have when we hear the word repentance, uh, and for good reason, right? Because it's something that probably all of us are familiar with through personal experience, right? We experience remorse, and those feelings cause us to turn to God for forgiveness, and they motivate us not to continue in our sin. And we see a really profound example of this in Jesus' story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, right? Where the wayward son, after squandering his inheritance in wild living, literally returns home to his father and asks for forgiveness out of remorse for what he's done, right? And through that story, of course, Jesus gives us this really beautiful picture of returning to the father and of the unconditional acceptance that he provides, right? And so one factor that leads to repentance, that leads to a return to God is remorse. Something else that we see in the New Testament that leads a person to repentance is revelation. And revelation is what the apostle Paul experienced when he was traveling on the road to Damascus, right? Jesus appeared to him and that direct spiritual experience completely changed Paul and everything that he was about. Right? Paul was one of the greatest persecutors of Christians, and then he turned to God and became one of the greatest evangelists for Christ. Revelation is also what Cornelius experienced in Acts chapter 10, when he had a dream that led him to send for Peter, right? and ultimately resulted in his faith in Christ and his baptism. Right? And so divine visits and dreams and visions can lead people to repentance. That returning to God can come as a result of revelation. And then in addition to remorse and in addition to revelation, repentance can also come through realization. It can come through realization. Right? And realization is when a person understands a new truth that changes the direction of their life. Right? Realization is like one of those aha moments that we have. Uh, like the first time that I had a cappuccino in an espresso bar in Naples, Italy. It completely changed my understanding of what coffee could be. Right? And then I came home to Starbucks and ordered a cappuccino there, and it changed again completely <laughs> in terms of what coffee could be. Right? But, it, but, a, but a realization is one of those aha moments. Right? And, and, and what's interesting is that the Greek word that is translated as repent in our, in our English Bibles is the word metanoia. Throughout the New Testament, metanoia is the word that's translated as repentance. Meta means after or with, and noia means mind or understand. And so the core meaning of this word, right, the core meaning of metanoia is to change your mind or to change your understanding in the sense that what you think after receiving some information is different from what you thought before. Right? Metanoia is about a mind change or a change in understanding in that what you think after receiving a piece of information is different from what you thought before. 
And as we think about John the Baptist's role, right, as the herald of the coming of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus, and as we think about John's mission, right, of preparing the way, and then we look at the content of John's message, these very first words that he preaches, and the reason that he is calling people to repentance, right? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven has come near. What we see, I think, is that John's message, as it, at its core, is a call for a metanoia, right? It's a call for a changed understanding about the kingdom of heaven. John was calling his hearers to a radically different and revolutionary understanding of the kingdom of heaven. Right, so at the time that John the Baptist began preaching this message, right, the Jews had been waiting hundreds of years for the arrival of God's kingdom. Right, and the standard Jewish teaching about the end times went something along the lines of, if we repent, the kingdom of heaven will come. Right? And so it was a very future-oriented view of the kingdom that the Jews had. Right? They saw the kingdom as a thing of the future. John's message was radically different and dramatically different. John preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or more literally, repent for the kingdom of God has already taken place. And so John is proclaiming here as he comes out of the wilderness, and very boldly, by the way, that the kingdom of heaven was not just a reality of the future, it's a reality of the present, which is something that would definitely require a new understanding. Right? And so return to God, John says, change your understanding because the kingdom is already here. Something else that the Jews believed about the coming of the kingdom of God is that it would have significant political implications for Israel. Right? The Jews believed that the coming Messiah, right, the Messiah for whom they had been waiting, would deliver them from their oppression and would restore them as a nation to the power and the prominence that they had enjoyed under King David. Right? And so the Jews very much saw the coming of the kingdom as a reversal of their present political fortunes. Right, that when the kingdom comes, they would no longer be subject to Rome or subject to anybody else, but that instead other nations would bow to them. Well, that expectation was also going to require a new understanding because the kingdom that John was proclaiming was not going to look like that at all. Instead, it was going to look more like John the Baptist himself. And when Jesus talked about John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7, this passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and he repeatedly asked the crowd that was listening to him, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? And one of the hypothetical answers that Jesus gave was a man dressed in fine clothing. Right? Did you go out to the wilderness to see a man dressed in fine clothing? And of course, Jesus' question right, assumed an answer of no, because that was definitely not John. John was not a man dressed in fine clothing. And he lived a different lifestyle entirely. His wilderness roots and his camel hair coat and his leather belt and his diet of locusts and wild honey, none of those things reflected the kingdom of the world in any way. There was nothing about John 
that reflected the stuff of powerful kings in palaces. And all of that was very intentionally preparing the way for a kingdom that was not about power and authority, but instead was about humility and sacrifice. And John was heralding a kingdom where the first were actually going to be last. Where the ones who exalted themselves would actually be humbled. Where greatness would be seen not in power and authority and position, but rather in service. Now, although John's call to repentance involves a changed understanding, right? A changing of the mind. We should not just think about it as an intellectual thing. That the metanoia about the kingdom that John is proclaiming here is not just intellectual. It also involved action. Because repentance involves changing our behavior. And John's message very much reflects that. Uh, If you're following along with me in the scriptures, turn over to Luke chapter 3. Luke 3 parallels Matthew 3. This is Luke's account of John's public ministry. And take a look with me at Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. As John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. It's a good opening line. I should have tried that this morning. (laughs) You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And one of the roles of the prophets in Scripture was to speak difficult truths to the people of the day. Uh, and we definitely see John doing that here. Right? There is nothing sugar-coated at all about calling his audience a brood of vipers. Right? That, is, that is high spice-level stuff, for sure. Right? And John's call there in verse 8 for his hearers to produce fruit in keeping with repentance is very much a call to action, right? That's a call to action. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John was looking for people whose lives bore fruit, people who lived lives that were worthy of the kingdom, people whose faith was about more than simply outward conformity, right? A life oriented towards the kingdom produces fruit. We also hear John say in those verses that it was not enough just to be from the line of Abraham. Right? Did you catch that? Don't be claiming that, John says in verse 8, because the kingdom that he was proclaiming and the kingdom that Jesus would establish was not going to look like that. It was going to be open to everyone, which is something else that was going to require quite a metanoia indeed. So, John's call to produce fruit in keeping with repentance here generates a question from his hearers in verse 10. Luke chapter 3, verse 10 says, What shall we do then? Asked the crowd. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, 
Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. You know, as we hear that question repeated from the crowd in those verses, what then shall we do? We see John revealing some very practical examples of what it looks like to bear fruit in keeping with the changed understanding about the kingdom. Right, John encourages the crowd to share resources. Right, if you have an extra shirt, give it to the person who doesn't have one. If you have extra food, share it. Right, he encourages tax collectors not to collect more than they need to from people, which unfortunately was a common practice of the day. Right, and he encourages soldiers to be content with their pay. Right, and so we see John there introducing some of the ethics that accompany a change in understanding about the kingdom. Right? Generosity, stewardship, social responsibility, contentedness. Right? These are some of the fruit of a kingdom life. And I love the way that Luke also highlights there in, in kind of a subtle way, but also unmistakable, unmistakably, the diversity of the audience that was gathering around John out there in the wilderness. Right? Because we see in that audience, uh, which includes tax collectors, right, who were much maligned and socially outcast by the Jews in first century Palestine, and, and the soldiers, right, who probably were Gentiles, right, we see in that audience that the kingdom of God is indeed not only open to Jews, but to everyone, right? And John's audience was already reflecting that, right? John's revolutionary message, heralding the kingdom, right? That the kingdom was, was not just a future reality, that it was not political, and that it was available to everyone was an invitation ultimately to a changed understanding. And it was a vital part of his role in preparing the way for Jesus. Because just one chapter later, in Luke 4, Jesus himself emerged out of the wilderness and went into the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth. And Luke says that Jesus read these words from the scroll of Isaiah in chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke says that when Jesus finished reading those words, he rolled up the scroll, he sat down, had everybody in the synagogue looking at him, and he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus was announcing that he himself was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Right? He was announcing that the kingdom had arrived and it had arrived in him. It had arrived in a person. Right? And this is precisely why we hear so many echoes of John's message 
in Jesus' teaching. Right, starting with Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, which says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Sound familiar? Apparently, there were no plagiarism laws uh, in the first century. Uh, but it's exactly the same verbatim as John's message. We also hear echoes of John's ethical teaching in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as well. Right, but of course, in keeping with all of this, right, Jesus didn't just come and teach about the kingdom. He embodied it. Right? Jesus lived it. Right? He, he embodied that generous sharing that John taught. Right? Feeding 5,000 people who were in need of food with just the five loaves and two fish that were available to share. He embodied the inclusivity that John preached with the company that he kept, right? sharing meals and dining with tax collectors and sinners. And when he went to eat at the home of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, in Luke chapter 19, right? and Zacchaeus told him that he had already given away half of his possessions to the poor, and that he was gonna pay back anyone who he had extorted four times the amount. That sounds like something that John the Baptist was asking tax collectors to do, right? When Zacchaeus told Jesus those things, Jesus declared that today salvation, today salvation has come to this house because he too is what? A son of Abraham, right? John said, John in the wilderness said that God can raise up children of Abraham out of these stones, right? And here's one being raised up in Zacchaeus, a stone that you would never expect through what he did. Right? Jesus embodied the kingdom that John heralded. And as followers of Jesus, you and I are called to do the very same. You know, Advent is the season where we remember and celebrate the one who came to embody the kingdom of God. It's the season that we remember and celebrate that the kingdom is here now, in part. And it's also the season where we wait in anticipation for Jesus to come again, right? And usher in this kingdom in full on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we allow John the Baptist to prepare the way for us in the spirit of his message, how might God be inviting you into a changed understanding this Advent season? How might God be inviting you to change your understanding this Advent season? And what will you do to embody the presence of the kingdom of God on earth now? What will you do to embody the presence of the kingdom of God on earth now? Would you pray with me? As we close this morning, I want to do something different. I want to invite you into a short imaginative prayer exercise uh, as a way for us to engage with God's word uh, this morning in a different way uh, beyond the words that we read on a page. And so I want to invite you now to settle into your seat 
find a comfortable position. And allow your body to relax. And take a few deep, slow breaths. And allow yourself to to become still and present. And as you allow yourself to become present, if your mind begins to wander, just pay attention to your breathing. And I want you to imagine yourself now as a part of that crowd listening to John preach at the Jordan River. And as you imagine yourself there, what do you notice about the scenery? As you look at the river, what do you see? As you look at the surrounding landscape, what do you see? What do you notice about the scenery? Now look around at the crowd that's assembled. What do you notice? Who do you see? What do you hear? Now I want you to imagine looking at John the Baptist, the one who everyone has come out to the Jordan to see. What does he look like? What do you notice about him? What does he sound like as he speaks? What do you hear John saying? Now I want you to imagine yourself like the crowd and those tax collectors and the soldiers. I want you to imagine yourself asking John that question. What should I do then? 
And what do you imagine John the Baptist saying to you in response? Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of this still and quiet space to sit with you. And we thank you for the many ways that you continue to speak to us today through your living and active word. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the reminder this morning from, from John the Baptist that your kingdom is here now. And we confess that that's often not the way that we feel with all the things that are going on in the world. And yet we're grateful for this season that reminds us in such an important way that, that, that you are here and that your kingdom is present and that you are coming again. And God, I ask that you would change our understanding this morning. And that you would give us eyes to see the way that we can be agents of your kingdom today in this place but that we might live lives that are oriented towards you and that produce the fruit of your kingdom. Thank you for the gift of love that you have given to us through your son, Jesus. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. We're gonna enter now into the practice of communion. Will we remember how God has shown his unfailing love for us through the life and the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. You know, the cross was really the, the ultimate end to that expectation that the Jews had that the kingdom would be a political reality. Jesus' death shattered that hope. But at the same time, God was doing something much more powerful because Jesus' death paved the way for his resurrection, right? which proved that Jesus was indeed the savior that the prophets had promised and that his kingdom would continue both now and forever. And so as we take these elements together this morning, the bread, which represents Jesus' body, and the cup, which represents Jesus' blood, may we remember the sacrificial love of Jesus through which we have been delivered from sin and restored to relationship with God, both now and for eternity. And may his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. During his final meal with his disciples, the scriptures tell us that Jesus took bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body given for you do this 
in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. May we do this in remembrance of him. Amen.